Poker Tov, welcome everyone. Glad that you're with me for an Aliyah day. Baruch Hashem. Trying some uh, new tech here, new microphone for the podcast uh, version of this Aliyah day. So I apologize for being a couple of minutes late, having to make sure that everything is functioning as it's supposed to function 100%, because we want our content on this broadcast to be worthwhile, and we want the quality to be equally worthwhile, and hopefully it is, prayerfully it is, so give us your feedback if you're listening to podcasts, let us know if our new and improved microphone is working, Uh, Baruch Hashem. All right, so glad to be with you, this is the second Aliyah of the final parashah of the book of Bracious. And we are in Parashah Vayeki and uh, chapter 48, looking at verse 10 as being the beginning of the uh, Aliyah. And this is where we are continuing the lesson, the discussion of uh, Yaakov blessing uh, his two grandsons, which he actually elevates them to the status of tribes. So, he accepts them as his own. And somebody once asked me many years ago, uh, well, that doesn't make any sense. They're his grandkids. Of course they're his. But they didn't understand what he meant was he accepted them as if they were his sons. Uh, not grandsons, but sons. So they're given the status of tribes. And so we learned some very interesting things from this relatively brief aliyah. And uh, so here we go. Verse 10. Now Israel's eyes were heavy with age, and he could not see, so he brought them near him, and he kissed them and hugged them. We see, first of all, that whenever the scripture is talking about Yaakov uh, in his spiritual function, in his function as, as a, a covenantal patriarch, it uses Israel instead of Yaakov. A kind of, he has two names. He goes by two names, in much the same way that the apostle Shaul was called both Paul um, and Shaul. Hashem did not change Paul's name. Many of you who are watching me know this, but it's uh, one of those remarkable myths that uh, exists in Christianity and has existed for some time. There is absolutely no source extant that suggests that God changed Paul's names. Um, And in fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, God said, go see Paul, who's also called Shaul. So it says here in verse 11, Israel said to Yosef, I dared not accept the thought that I would see your face, and here God has shown me even your offspring. Yosef then removed them from his knees, and he prostrated with his face towards the ground. And Yosef took the two of them, Ephraim with his right hand to Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left to Israel's right. And he drew them close to him. But Israel extended his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head. He maneuvered his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Yosef. And he said, O God, before whom my forefathers Abraham and Isaac walked, God who shepherds me from my inception until this day, may the angel who redeems me from all evil bless these lads. And may my name be declared upon them, and the names of my forefathers, Avraham and Yitzhak, and may they proliferate abundantly like fish in the land. 
Yosef saw that his father was placing his hand on Ephraim's head, and it displeased him. So he supported his father's hand and removed it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's said. Now, let's uh, first and foremost, we have in this scene, we have uh, something that Yaakov seems to be prone to do, and that is to bless the younger in place of the older. So this is twice now that uh, Yaakov has... Um, has done away with, so to speak, the concept of that the firstborn has uh, supremacy. And we know that even uh, Yaakov himself was not the firstborn, so it seems fitting that he would be one who always would uh, seemingly uh, favor the younger. But I, I love what um, Rabbi Nakshoni, in his commentary in the weekly parashah, writes something to the introduction of this particular uh, sefer. And he says, The aim behind all this, says Rabbi Sam- Samson Raphael Hirsch, is to stress that there is no, there is no ethical or spiritual superiority that derives from one's birth. Okay, now this is very important for our time um, because there exists within Judaism as a whole uh, the idea that if you are born Jewish, then uh, God is interested in you and that he wants you to learn his Torah, that he wants you to uh, live by the Torah, and that there's kind of an idea uh, really, we talk about the once saved, always saved um, theology and, and how uh, in, incorrect that is. But Judaism has kind of its own once saved, always saved uh, theology. And that is that if you're once born a Jew, you're always going to be a Jew and pretty much nothing can undo that. You have a, you have a spot in Shemaim. It's really the precise opposite of what the Torah says. It is in direct conflict with the halakha. And not to mention that it's precisely what Yochanan the Immerser was talking about when he looked at the Pharisaical leaders, not just the Pharisaical leaders, but really all the leaders at the time. And he said, listen, don't think that just because you could call your father Avraham that uh, you're going to make it. Because, listen, that's not about inheritance. God can take these stones and he can turn them into children of Avraham. But there exists there in Judaism as a whole this concept that if you're born Jewish that you are have special, special status. And if you're not born Jewish, God doesn't really care. And um, there's a concept, of course, that you can become a convert. Although Judaism used to be extremely evangelical and really should continue to be. But uh, that stopped over time. And the reason it stopped over time had to do with persecution. But... Now the idea is that you can become a convert, and, and halakhically, if you are a convert, you're, it's as if you have been born a Jew. Um, there's no, there should be no difference. But even, even sadly, uh, even within uh, certain realms of Judaism, there still exists a prejudice. Well, this uh, also exists in what is uh, commonly known as Messianic Judaism. That um, if you're born a Jew, no matter what your observance level is, if you're born into a quote-unquote Jewish home, that, uh, you know, you're the chosen and, you know, you're in the Jewish side of the church. And if you're uh, non-Jewish, then you're in the non-Jewish side of the church. And so there's two flocks with one shepherd. Um, 
and then there's two sets of laws. There's two. There's a there's a bread that's given to the Jewish. There's a Jewish bread. There's a kosher certified Jewish bread given to the Jewish uh, kids, and then there's a non-kosher uh, non-bread that's given to the other kids. It's a precise precise opposite of what uh, Yeshua said in Yochanan chapter ten when he said, "I'm going to have one flock and one shepherd." And there's people right now, he said, that are not part of this flock, but I'm calling them. And they're going to become part of the flock. So the concept of Jew and Gentile, one Messiah, is actually precisely opposite of what Yeshua taught. So in both sides of the fence, there exists this uh, kind of a blood cult mentality. That if you're born and genetically of the family, then you're in like Flynn. And if you're not, yeah, you know, you're not really a second class citizen, although, you know, you kind of are, but you aren't, but you are. And so what is being expressed here by Rabbi Nakshoni as he's bringing it down from Rabbi uh, Samson Raphael is that, and let me repeat, there is no ethical or spiritual superiority derived from one's birth, period. On the contrary, the older will serve the younger if the younger is ethically superior to the older. So it's all merit-based, as it should be. It's one thing that makes America such a great country. It's what, what, what's one of the things that made America so unique on the world stage uh, back in the uh, 18th century when our country was founded is because the concept was that you, one was not, not regulated. Their, their future was not predicated or regulated by how they were born. You could be born a pauper and yet end up a noble. Whereas prior, if you were not born into a noble family or a royal family or a wealthy family, you had no hope. You had no hope of ever getting out of that class. And so here, very important that we see this in the Torah, right here, expressed in the Torah, that the older will serve the younger if the younger is ethically superior to the older. The only advantage that the firstborn has with respect to Torah law is his material inheritance. That's it. That's it. The Torah says that the firstborn should get the bulk of the inheritance, but that's all. It says here, in the spiritual world, I'm reading it right here. I, I, I just want to emphasize that I'm not making this up. I'm reading this. So important. It's really important for our day. In the spiritual world, no one enjoys superiority as the result of inheritance. Let me read that to you again. In the spiritual world, in other words, in God's economy, in God's world, according to Hashem, He does not care if you came from a Jewish home. He does not care if you were raised Jewish. He doesn't care one iota if your last name is uh, uh, Smith, or if your last name is uh, Finkelstein, or your last name is Griffin, or your last name is uh, Cunningham. He doesn't care. What He cares about is, are you in covenant with Him? Okay, why? Because there is no spiritual, there's no uh, in, in superiority as a result of inheritance. Zero, zilch, nada. Only the one chosen by Hashem, because of his spiritual qualities, merits the lofty status that accompanies holiness. This is what has been written right here. Only the one chosen by Hashem. So many are called, but few are chosen you got to be chosen. 
right? Not the frozen chosen, but the chosen. Only the one chosen by Hashem because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. Because of his spiritual qualities, merits the lofty status that accompanies holiness. Boy, this is beautiful. I want to throw this book across the room at this point. So, it says here again, In Yaakov's blessing, the firstborn enjoys no special privilege where there is a brother who is spiritually superior. So much for the blood cult. We do not believe in the blood cult at Lapid. We do not care. I mean, you know, I don't want to, that sounds kind of harsh. We do care. We find it interesting if one is from a Jewish background. or we, we, we find everybody's heritage interesting. Okay, that's what I mean. But in terms of spirituality, in terms of being in the family, in terms of being a son or daughter of Abraham, uh, where you were born or how you were born or what family you were born in doesn't really matter. Just like we were saying yesterday, it's not your birth that's the big deal. It's not how you begin the walk. It's how you finish it, right? All right. So, moving right along. What's something else we want to say? Ah, here we go. So, that was really good. I mean, wow, I'm inspired. Baruch Hashem. Making sure I'm not leaving anything out here with respect to that. Ah, yes. Okay, so, verse 10. It says, now Israel's eyes were heavy with age. I just thought it was interesting, Rabbi Monk points out why, it says here, why we close our eyes when we pray. The Kohanim close our eyes while giving the priestly blessing. We, we cover our eyes when we say Shema, and the answer to the question is, why do we do that? Well, one, because whenever we say the Shema, we believe the Divine Presence falls, and so we don't want to look upon the Divine Presence, of course. But really, the, the main reason, the, the one that's cited most often is it very simple? When we close our eyes when we're praying or speaking a blessing, that provides us with a level of concentration and a level of kavanah. So I just wanted to um, point that out. When Yaakov says to Yosef, he says, I did not expect to see you alive. This is a wonderful illustration of humility that we should be uh, humble people. But it's also an illustration, because it says here, I dare not accept the thought. Rabbi Monk points out, I dare not accept the thought, according to Rashi, that this um, uh, has the sense of, of, uh, of thinking, um, that I dare not have thought. But Ankelos translates, I had not hoped. Rashbaum says, I did not deem myself sufficiently worthy. And the Midrashim interpret, I did not even pray to see you again, for I thought you were dead. In each instance, what I want to point out here, is that the very last person, that Yaakov expected to be the Redeemer, the very last person that Yaakov had ever thought in a million years would be sitting on the throne in Egypt and as Zephaniah Paneah, the savior of the world, was Yosef. He didn't even give it a thought. He didn't even pray. And this goes along with what we've been saying the entire time. The Redeemer... Uh, is, is the one. The Redeemer is Yeshua. The very one that the brothers uh, say is never ever going to be the one. And he's the one. And that's, that's what we're seeing here again and again and again with this uh, particular Aliyah. So it goes on to say in, in verse 12, Rabbi Monk's commentary to verse 12, Yosef then removed them from his knee. So it says, <clears throat> in a figurative sense, 
He took them off his lap and said to them, Look, no longer for the princely honors which you have enjoyed so far. They are only temporary. Okay? So he's telling his sons, listen, you've been growing up in a, uh, a privileged home. And you're, you're like princes. But this is not your mission. Your mission is not to live in comfort. Your mission is not to uh, enjoy a royal status. What's your mission? I'm glad you asked. It says, instead, pray that the divine spirit should come to inspire your grandfather to bestow his blessing upon you. This comes from the Midrash Haggadot. Here we find insisted so... Here, excuse, Slika. Here we find the underlying reason why Yosef brought his children with him and why he insisted so much that they be blessed by his father. Yosef wants to instill in his boys, listen, hey boys, what we're doing here in Egypt is just uh, a, te a temporary thing. And we're getting all these accolades, right? We're on uh, uh, e Egypt's, uh, Egypt's uh, idol, right? Egypt's most talented, but that's not why we're here on the stage. We're here on the stage for a reason, which is why I'm giving you the, the uh, want my father to bless you, and this, this is it. Indeed, throughout Genesis, the patriarchal benediction signifies the investiture of the messianic vocation of the Jewish people. What Yosef wanted his brothers to have, or excuse me, his sons to have, was the mission. And what is the mission? The mission, it says right here in Rabbi Monk's commentary, is a messianic vocation. What does that mean? It means being repairers of the world, bringing people into the covenant, helping to collect the holy sparks. What did Abraham do? You know, Avraham became a believer in Hashem. He is the father of monotheism. He, he uh, woke up one day and realized that it wasn't a bunch of gods, chas uh, shalom, that were running the universe, but there's only one God. But what did he do? What is Avraham known for in Jewish literature? Is he known for sitting back and with his wife and, and saying, you know, this is great. Uh, I'm going to have my wife here. And every child that we have is going to become a member of this faith. Uh, and if you're not born of my house, that's too bad. It's too bad, you know. But maybe by accident of birth, you know, you'll, I'll give birth to you and you'll be part of this, uh, this uh, you know, heritage. No, it's not what he did. He went out from there and he immediately started to um, win people to the faith. He started to evangelize. He was the first convert. So was Sarah. And he converted everybody that he came in contact with. This is why the, the Torah says that when he came to the Holy Land, he brought with him the, the souls that he had made. And when it says that he had made them, the commentators recognize, well, he didn't give birth to anybody. What does it mean? It means that he converted them, that he brought them into the faith because the, the halakha is that anyone that you bring to the Lord, it is as if you gave birth to them. So the point being is the very father of, of our faith and all of us, my friends, that, that are in the covenant 
every Jew who's in the covenant, this includes you if you're a follower of Mashiach, you are in the covenant, all of us are sons and daughters of Avraham, every single one of them. I said, uh, I don't know how many times I've said this in my ministry, but I'll say it again, and that is that if you are a son of Avraham, it is an impossibility not to be Jewish. Impossibility. 100%. According to Jewish thought, according to, and our faith is Jewish, right? I mean, we serve, the, let's, let's review. We, we serve the God of Israel. We believe in the Messiah of Israel. We read the scriptures of Israel and we follow the law of Israel. Right. So everything and all the heroes of the Bible, every single one of them were circumcised, Torah true Jews. Every single one of them. Every single one of the apostles, Jews. The Messiah, Jewish. The Messiah, a Pharisee. The apostles, Pharisees. Every single one of them. So every, our whole spiritual world is Jewish, right? And so therefore, from a Jewish point of view, you cannot be a son of Abraham, and not be Jewish, period. It's just, that's just, that's what we got to start with that, okay? So that being said, we've got to mimic our father Abraham. What did he do? He went around trying to bring people into covenant. That's the whole point, and that is what Yosef wanted more than anything. More than the crown, more than, uh, you know, he enjoyed, a, he had a corner office there on the, uh, the, the hundredth story, uh, pyramid. He had a corner office in the pyramid, and uh, you know he had uh, Kerrig coffee. All, everything kosher is wonderful. But what he really wanted, what he really wanted most of all, was that uh, he wanted his children to inherit the mission. Most of all, and isn't that what we inherited? This is why Yeshua said, "Greater things than these that you do," right? By the way, it says here that he blessed Yosef, but in fact he was blessing the children. So what does that mean? Rabbi Bachia brings down an amazing insight to this. It says that if you, if you bless the fruit, then you're actually blessing the tree, which is the source of the fruit. Yes. So, therefore, this is why it's so important for us to be people who produce good fruit. Because in producing good fruit, we receive the blessing, but in fact, the blessing goes ultimately to the Messiah. Because the Messiah is the tree. He is the source which allows us to produce the fruit. Uh, incidentally, uh, not so much. Well, let, before I share that, let me share this. So continuing on to verse 14, it says, And he laid his hands upon Ephraim's head. Rabbi Monk brings down just an interesting insight here that is just worth mentioning. And that is that, there is a supernatural phenomenon associated with blessing and the laying on of hands. So the laying on of hands is 100% a Jewish thing. And it says here, not only is the hand the organ par excellence for carrying out what the human brain dictates, but it is also through the hand that the Holy Spirit is, and this is Rabbi Monk I'm reading here, it's through the hands that the Holy Spirit is transmitted at the time of ordination, uh, the time of consecration, and the time of blessing. The, the, the three scriptural references for this, ordination, Numbers 27, 18, consecration, Leviticus 1, 4, and, and blessing, uh, Leviticus 9, 22. The direct links between the spirit and the hands enable us to understand Onkelos' translation of the words, he placed his hands intelligently, being derived from uh, sekel, intelligence, and not from sekel, folly. 
Okay, so the, there's this a spiritual connection um, in the laying out of hands. I just wanted to point that out, which is also one of the reasons why Yeshua is at the right hand of God. The right hand is considered the, the hand of, of blessing. And it's also why Scripture, when, when it's referring esoterically to um, Hashem, uh, to Messiah anyway, refers to him as God's uh, mighty hand, his outstretched arm. Why? Because there's a connection between the hand and, and the blessing. So when we pray for people, there is a Jewish spiritual precedent for the laying on of hands. It is a Jewish thing, 100%, not just merely, um, as some have uh, thought, something crazy that came out of the... Uh, the Christian uh, uh, charismatic movement. All right, a couple more things here that I want to get to uh, as we're looking at this Aliyah. First of all, um, there's a really interesting insight here from Rabbeinu Bakya again. And Rabbeinu Bakya is talking about... Um, well, first of all, I should mention before I get to this, because this is verse 19 I'm about to talk about here. The, it says, the angel who redeemed me, the angel esoterically here, there's really not a lot of commentary, which I find interesting. Usually when there's something very deep and esoteric and not really explainable, there's not a whole lot of dialogue about it. And such is the case here with verse 16, where it talks about the angel who redeems me. And so uh, this angel is believed to be none other than Memtet. <clears throat> the Kol Hator refers to this angel as the angel of Yosef, which is the only angel that can ultimately defeat the angel of Esau and bring about the redemption. And so this is a very deep, very kind of Kabbalistic idea that this angel is the angel who brings redemption, which is Memtet, which is Yeshua, which is Yosef, Masab and Yosef. But I digress. So in verse 19 it says, He too will become great, talking about Ephraim, however his younger, or excuse me, Menashe, however his younger brother, talking about Ephraim, will become even greater. And so I just point out that um, Rabbeinu Bakia says, Yaakov used both the adjectives great and small in connection with Yosef's sons. We have encountered this description of relative smallness already in connection with the sun and the moon of the fourth day of creation from Genesis 1.16 where both luminaries have first been described as great. Subsequently, the Torah distinguishes the relative greatness of one of the luminaries, the sun, but ascribing it as great when compared to the lesser luminary, the moon. The greatness of Ephraim, which Yaakov referred to, was that Yehoshua would be a descendant of his tribe. Now, where did Yeshua... Yeshua was born in Bethlehem, right? Because he was from the, from the lineage of David. And the, the uh, Talmud confirms that fact. But where did, he, where did he start his ministry from? He started from the territory of Ephraim. He started it from, and was actually headquartered in, Galilee. Which is where the sages said the Messiah would come from. The, not, not, be, not come from in terms of birth, but where he would, he would um, be revealed from. Let's put it that way. The sages said that he would be revealed from Galilee. And this is why Jewish literature is so important. Because in the, in the Gospels, the leaders say, search the scriptures and find where the Messiah comes from Galilee. Well, it's kind of a trick question. Because the scriptures don't say he comes from Galilee. 
It doesn't say that in the Torah. But it does say that in the Midrash Rabbah and in the Talmud. So there's that, right? So it's kind of a trick. So it says Joshua was so great that he could arrest the orbit of both the sun and the moon, as we see from Joshua 10.12. In response to Joshua's instructions for the sun and the moon to stand still, the book of Yehoshua informs us in Yehoshua 10.13 that they did indeed interrupt their respective orbits until... Yehoshua had taken his revenge on the Canaanites. So it goes on to say that Yehoshua was a product of these, of, of these people. And the prophet testifies that God was with Yehoshua and that his fame spread throughout the entire globe. Joshua 6.27. What is the name of Messiah in English? If you translate Yeshua into English, you do not get Jesus. People have said erroneously that, well, Jesus is just an English uh, translation of Yeshua, uh, uh, Yeshua. It is not. It is not. If one was going to translate Yeshua into English, the name would be Joshua. So therefore, what I just read to you about this blessing has a spiritual layer behind it. So we peel the onion a little bit deeper. The Peshat level is it's talking ultimately about Joshua. But on the spiritual level, it's talking about Mashiach, who is Yeshua. Same name. Same name. All right, one final thing. And verse, going back to verse 16. Uh, it's talking about the angel who redeems me. And so it says here, Yaakov's blessing refers to two things, daily sustenance, substance, parnasa, and deliverance from all danger, geula. According to the Midrash, the first comes from the word, the ver, excuse me, the first comes from the word, God who shepherds me from my inception unto this day, an image which invokes providence leading man to his pasture, in other words, his substance. And Yaakov's eyes, continues Rabbi Eliezer and Yalkut Shimoni, both benefits depend on a daily miracle. So our substance and our protection is a daily miracle, which is why we give thanks. So it says, in Yaakov's eyes, continues uh, the rabbi, um, he prays for the providence to be upon them. However, Yaakov makes a distinction between the two benefits. He attributes daily substance to a divine act. So our food, right? What keeps us alive, it says here. It appears, uh, and, and, and deliverance comes from a lesser degree. So, there, so therefore, there can, there's, one only needs an appointed angel for protection, but in terms of substance, that can only come from God. It says it appears that the substance accorded daily to all creatures from the largest to the most minute is something supernatural for, for which the creator alone holds the keys. The creator alone holds the keys to substance. As it says in the Talmud and Pesachim 118a, the angel who redeems me from all evil, which indicates that an ordinary angel suffices to effect redemption from evil, from, from or deliverance from, from uh, trouble. Whereas regarding sustenance, it is written, God who shepherds me, which reveals that God himself provides man his sustenance. Now, why is that important? Because when Yeshua blessed the fishes and the loaves, and provided sustenance for the people who were hungry, 
that was more than just a cute miracle. It was an emphatic statement of his divinity because only Hashem holds the keys to sustenance. And so when they looked at him and said, Mashiach, Adonai, Rabbi, where are we going to get food for all these people? We're in the middle of nowhere. Walmart's already closed. There's no kosher uh, Tom Thumb anywhere around. What are we going to do? And he said, don't worry. And suddenly he said, just bring me all the fish and loaves you have. And he blessed it and fed 5,000. Did that twice. So that is an emphatic statement that he holds the keys. That he is in the spirit realm, the Yosef, the viceroy of the kingdom of God. And God said to him, listen, here are the keys to death. Here's the keys to resurrection. Here's the keys to reign. Here's the keys to sustenance. They're all yours. If you want anything, ask him. End of our Aliyah today. I hope that uh, the microphone worked out good. And I hope that you have a blessed day. And I hope that you are happy today and joyful today. And tell somebody how awesome they are and bring them into the covenant. We'll see you tomorrow with God's help. Shalom, shalom.